Hi, I'm Hannah, team manager with the Orange Arrow Players Association, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to coach student athletes to aim for success off the field. Please consider making a play by giving, posting a friend raiser, subscribing to our podcast and YouTube channel, and staying connected on social media at Orange Arrow PA. Visit orangearrow.org for more information. Thank you for listening. Take aim. My guy, CK, Courtney Kirkland. What up, boss? What's going on? What's going on, Sean? Good to talk to you. How you doing? I'm well. How are you doing? Uh, man, I'm doing wonderful, man. Enjoying the sunny weather, trying to get a little bit of golf in, and trying to do my best to, uh, you know, stay six to ten feet away from people. Hold on, bro. You said a little bit of golf. Now, we spoke offline. I think you're getting more than a little bit of golf in, man. So, do this time of court to me. Talk to me about golf, man. How much time you been getting out? Well, I mean, you know, when I say a little bit of time, I don't spend the, the, the typical, you know, seven to eight hours at the course. I only go and spend about four hours. So, um, so that's why I say it's just a little bit of time. I don't, I don't, and I don't go and spend seven, eight hours like I, like I used to. Fair enough. Yeah. Since we're on golf, I enjoy the game. You really enjoy the game. You love the game. Looking for the opportunity yeah. where we get a chance to play. Yeah. When you think of some of your favorite courses or at least favorite cities you played in when it comes to golf, what comes to mind? Um, you know, I, I love um, love playing down in um, in Florida. Um, they have a, a bunch of great courses um, down in, in the Orlando area. Um, I love being in the Hilton Head um, area. They have some wonderful courses there. Myrtle Beach is always great. Um, and then I like going out west too, out into the uh, Arizona uh, area. So um, it's just a lot of you know my my balls they they fly very very far when I get out to that dry heat. So <laughs> I, I can I can I can crush it I can crush it out there. You get me out there in Vegas and, and Phoenix and I can crush it. So uh, I like some of those areas as well. So I um you know I, I there's a there's a hit or mix as a mix for me. Um, I like the very green areas, so you get a lot of that in the East Coast. Um, but I do like to be able to smash it a lot when I go out west in some of the dry areas, dry climates. Do you have a favorite club? Um, no, no, I, no, there's no, there's no favorite for me. Uh, I mean, there are obviously ones that I don't like, um, but there's, I, I don't have a favorite. I just like to be out in, in nature. Um, I like the challenges that golf brings me. Um, you know, when I look and I, I set it up and I see, you know, what's to come. I see the, uh, I see the water, I see the sand traps, I see where the trees are, you know, where the dog legs are. And it gives me an opportunity to navigate what my next options are. And that's kind of how I like to live my life too, mm-hmm. just to understand where the obstacles are. And once I know where the obstacles are, I have to navigate my, my way around those obstacles. And then when I do um, experience some of those obstacles and, and, and get myself engaged in them, then I can can't cry over the situation, have to find ways to get myself out of those situations uh, as well. So uh, as I look at golf as, as life, you know, as a testament to, to life. So there's always going to be some challenges. You can sit there and cry about it or you can, you know, get up and then work your way out of it. So that's the way that I try to approach it. I appreciate that approach and that thought process and that metaphor for life. And I actually think I'm going to have to use a piece of that because maybe when I share that with my wife, she'll allow me to go out more often. 
I get, yeah, I get, I get yeah, a couple I more rounds in. Babe, this is going to help idea. me better out with life, babe. <laughs> I think it's a great idea, man. If you need me to reach your own with that, you know, I can go ahead and, you know, put that word in for you. Appreciate you, bro. Appreciate you, man. So I want to get more into your, your, your background, um, where you from growing up. But before we get into that, we have start off a section called warm up or stretch. As an athlete, you know the importance of warming up and stretching. So I got Absolutely. a question for you to warm up with. Okay. One of your favorite movies of all times. Something that you do not get tired of watching. Uh, favorite movies of all time. Well, He's one I, of them. <laughs> I, I, let, let me t- I'm going to put it to you like this. I, I played golf yesterday. And um, I played with a young man. So I'm, I'm 45 years old. So I, I tell my age there. I played with a young man yesterday who was uh, 29 years old. So you can tell where the where the age disparity, uh, right. the, the discrepancy is. Okay, so <laughs> yesterday he, he hit a ball and you know he he messed up when he when he hit the shot, and um and so I was I said oh man you know I should I should you know tell somebody you know that you get you messed up. He says oh man you know don't don't tell nobody don't tell nobody. I said I said okay okay I'm not gonna tell anybody. Then all of a sudden I said la 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 hey. Chris over here hit a bad shot. And he said, hey, hey, don't say that. I said, well, I ain't going to tell nobody else. And he started cracking up. And he said, that's a classic. Now, mind you, I didn't say the name of the movie. (laughs) I didn't say who was in it. I didn't say anything like that. And so the point of it is, is that I can go basically verbatim through the whole movie of Friday and tell you every single line in that movie. And that was a classic case of of, uh, of Ezel uh, seeing Smokey. <laughs> Smokey! <laughs> Friday, that's a great one. Yeah, that's a great so one. Friday, yeah, Friday is my is my all-time favorite. You know, I mean, you, you name it, you know, I got it. Um, so, yeah, that, that is my favorite, my favorite movie. Yeah, that's a great one. I really think about the... Uh... And that line when the the young lady said she looked like Janet Jackson, and then uh, when, he came, when she came over, <laughs> like Freddie yeah, Freddie Jackson. That that was, that really put. I'm trying to think with Chris Tucker, was he on Def Comedy Jam before that or after? Because I feel like that really took him to new heights. Yeah. So what I understand is that Ice Cube actually uh, noticed Chris Tucker when he was on Def Jam. Okay. He was on Death uh, Jam first. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I think that uh, Ice Cube identified him there, uh, and then I think that he brought him out to LA audition uh, for the partner thing. And uh, but yeah, he he hit it nails. You know, he, out the park. He hit the, the, yeah, he hit it. He hit Smokey. I mean, and I, and I don't know if they've been able to. You know, they had the, the all the other Friday versions, but um, nothing could could top. You know, the the first uh, the first. Uh, Friday. That person was classic. Uh, yeah, it was it was classic. And so, what was interesting to me is that again, I talk about my age when I saw the movie, and I, now I'm talking to a 29 year old, you know, who, you know, and he know he knows it just like that, right? You know, I've I've got a I've got a nephew who's 25, and he knows the movie just like that. So, um, it is you know it is definitely a classic. And, uh, you know, I, I love it. I, I can watch it. I can watch it all day, every day. And <laughs> when, I, when I was in college, that's what I did. I watched it all day. All day, every day. That's how you know it, front, front, front to back. The um, Another one, warm up for you. You can have dinner with anyone, any famous person, dead or alive. Who are you having dinner with and why? 
Oh, you know, I I don't know if I could just have dinner with just one person. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you, I'll give you three then, like a, like three. playing golf, like foursome. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, you know, I I would love to, uh, I'd love to sit down and talk with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm. Um, I would love to just sit down and and just pick his brain. Uh, regarding leadership mm. and, and how he's able to lead a movement, lead a charge, and how he's able to stand in front of people, so many people, and deliver a message and have everyone just just buy into his message. And so his his ability to lead people, I think, was fascinating. And I would just love to just sit down, pick his brain, and just understand how he how he went about delivering his message in, in, in the tone like it, it's not just saying the words but in the met the manner in which he spoke it like if you if you listen to him it, it, he's not just saying words there's a tone behind what he says there's a there's a method behind it mm-hmm. and um and he and listening to it i just buy into it right. i just buy into it you know off the top and so i would love to just hear, hear, pick his brain to understand know how you go about delivering your messages your message for inspiration and just and leading people to um to the what he what he claimed to promise land so that's good uh, and so one person and so even thinking about i'm with you there as far as when he speaks it's almost it's like very intentional there's no words are wasted he has purpose for everything that he says so mlk that's a strong start so who you got you got two more yeah yeah, um, I think the next person would be um, uh, former President Barack Obama. Yeah, um, I would like to talk with him about um, about hope and change, mm. um, and the the courage to stand out there alone, creating change. Um, because in order for you to get people to follow you, you have to start. You have to start alone. You have right. to start by yourself. And, you know, and, and, you know, I, I look at change. And so I, I think of this, the, the idea of a bunch of people standing around and everybody, everybody's doing what is considered normal. Mm-hmm. Everybody's standing around. Everybody's talking. Just, just imagine you have 50 people. They're all standing around. They're talking. Everything is calm. Nothing is going on. Okay. So if you take one person out of those 50 people and you have that person stand away and then just start dancing. No music. They just start dancing some sort of a weird dance, but they just start dancing. The other 49 people would look at that person. Like this person is crazy. What's wrong with this person? Why are you just dancing out of the blue when there's no music? Why are you dancing out of the blue when no one else is dancing? Why are you just doing this? This, it seems a, a little bit strange. And but what happens is that when you get a second person to follow that first person to start dancing, then everyone looks and says, "Okay, well, that seems a little odd that there's only a few people that are dancing, but, you know, maybe it's not so bad. And then you get a third person and a fourth person. What happens is that now you're starting starting to create change because what was normal at the time was everyone standing around talking. Now what's starting to become as more people come on and come, come, um, come a part of what's, what's happening. What happens is that 
you're now creating a movement. And so now you may have 49 people that are dancing, one person who's standing around, or that one person then is the person that is the odd man out. Right. And now they are the ones who look strange for not dancing with everyone else. And so Barack Obama, to me, uh, I would love to just pick his brain as it relates to creating change, because I'm all about I'm all about things being status quo, but when things are status quo and they're not right, I believe in change. And sometimes when it comes to change, you have to stand out there on your own for the, the greater good. And then hopefully you get the people to follow you as long as you're standing on the right kind of platform. So he would be my, my second pick to, uh, to sit down and have, um, have dinner with. That's really good. Cause so for me, when I start to think about leadership, I tie it in with, with vision and the importance that for leaders to have vision and be able to share that vision and wholeheartedly believe in it, no matter the cost. And so some of those great leaders, those two men you just named, they had the vision, the leadership, no matter the cost. Unfortunately, you know, Martin Luther King lost his life uh, because of, because of it. And, and, you know, we know some of the things that President Obama have gone through and it's, and it's inter- interesting, you know, the scenario you gave with the one person dancing. And so that individual went out there and started dancing while the other 49 were not, no matter no matter the cause, no matter if they were laughing at that person or they were getting laughed at or they were getting teased, what have you. Then now, because they stood out and, and, and no matter the cause, they continued, they knew their vision, they knew what they wanted to create. Now, now you got 48 more over there <laughs> dancing right along with them. So uh, no matter the cause. You got one more, boss, one more. Yeah. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I would bet that instead of having dinner with President Obama, you'll probably, probably play a round of golf with him. You'll rather play a round of golf. Because <laughs> you know he's an avid golfer. No, but see, you know what, though? No, I, I wouldn't, I you wouldn't, wouldn't play golf with him. Nope. Why? Because I, because I don't talk when I play golf. Okay, fair enough. I don't talk. I don't talk you can't get an obsession for President Obama? No, no. Because I'm, I'd be, because I'd be trying to feed him. And so, I'm, I'm very, I'm very competitive. So you know, we can, we can be at the driving range, and we can sit there and talk. <laughs> we can be on the putting green, and we right. can sit there and talk. But once we tee off, then you know, you know, I, we, we just not, we're not conversing like that. So uh, fair enough. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be picking his brain in. I'd be trying to feed him. Fair enough. All right. So, so, so he's at your dinner table. Then you have one more person to join you all. Uh, so, uh, so one more person would be, um, one more person would be my dad, my bro, uh, Grover Kirkman. Um, my dad passed away, um, 2014. Um, but the one thing about my dad, he embodied true, true leadership. Mm. Um, he was a basketball coach in, uh, in Flint, Michigan. Um, and he, he had, um, he had some very, very prominent basketball players that played for him um, over the years. I mean, he had uh, the likes of Trent Tucker and Glenn Rice and Jeff Grayer and Andre Rise and Fernando Smith, um, you know, Morris Peterson. So, I mean, I could go down the list. There are so many um, prominent um, basketball players that, um, that have now played in the NBA, uh, and they came from my dad's system. Um, but the one thing that I always saw – in my dad was um, his work ethic. Um, this man really, really, he, he didn't talk about um, 
what needed to be done. He just made it happen. Mm. And so he would gather a group of young men, you know, you know, ranging from the age of uh, 14 to 17, um, who were down in the luck that didn't have a, a family structure, um, didn't have men in their lives. And he would um, lift them up and, and help them become men, um, great men in this society. And, um, but I would just watch him um, when he would go, and I, and I was a kid and I watched him, and I watched him as he would create plays um, that would work for his teams and how he would discipline some of his players and um, how he would um, fight against all odds to, to beat um, rivalry teams that were, um, were expected to be the better team. So, I mean, he, would, he took teams that were um, obviously at the very bottom and he would turn the program around and he miraculously he would go and he would beat the, the prominent teams in the state of Michigan. And, uh, and he's, you know, he's held, had uh, many records um, uh, in the state of Michigan. Uh, one time, uh, one of the all time winning ex coaches uh, in the state of Michigan. And um, I mean, you know, just to be able to have another conversation with him yeah. would be, would be one of the best things that I could, uh, that I could have just because I, I learned so much from him. But it wasn't just from words. Like I, I learned a lot from him, the things that he he would say to me. But I learned so much from watching him as well, mm, and just watching important. his actions. Because I do believe that there are power in words, but action to me they just they just speak way louder than the words. So um, yeah, he would be the he'd be the other person that I'd, I'd love to have at the dinner table, and I'd be able to tell him that I'm because of me. He's having dinner with. Dr. Martin Luther King and Barack Obama. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful picture you just painted. That's a strong table. And so since you mentioned Flint, talk to us about where you're from, your family. You mentioned your dad growing up, some of the sports you played in high school. I'll throw it back to you. Yeah, yeah. I uh, grew up in Flint, Michigan. Um, and uh, it was the, um, you know, when I was growing up, it was a very, very, prominent city city was thriving doing very well we had the auto industry um that was doing well now how um, how, how far is flint from detroit 60 miles okay 60 miles mm -hmm. okay um so you know our auto industry was doing very well <clears throat> healthcare industry was doing well um education system was doing very well we were the when i was when i was you know, a lot younger we were the third largest city um in the state um, and then our sports programs were, were off the chain. So, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed being, uh, being, uh, being from Flint and really learning, um, you know, my, my basis from the city. Um, and so it, it was, uh, but there were challenges though. There were challenges because Flint was a rough, it was a rough city. So the city itself as a whole, we were all collective, collectively engaged because it was, because it was Flint and then there was Detroit and then there was everywhere, everywhere else. You know, you always heard about Detroit, you'd hear about Lansing, but there was everywhere else. And so Flint became, you know, that city that just kind of came onto the map that people weren't paying that much attention to. And, um, and so, you know, I'm proud to, to call Flint home and, uh, and to be from there. So, um, but yeah, but growing up, I mean, it was, it was tough. You know, I, we, we had, uh, you know, the high school that I went to, uh, Northwestern, we had some, um, some bitter, bitter rivals, um, you know, with our, uh, crosstown, uh, teams. 
um, in, in many sports. You know, basketball was, was, was the big deal um, for us. But, you know, we had pretty decent football teams. Um, you know, our bands were pretty good. Um, so, but, uh, but yeah, but, but Flint was, you know, Flint was something else. So I, I, I enjoyed it, and uh, I'm proud to be from Flint. And, uh, and what's interesting is that I can talk to, I can run a pass anybody right now that's from Flint. And, uh, and off, the, off the top, if you mention my dad's name, they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I know Coach Carter. Wow. Uh, and so that's, that's what he ended up representing when he represented um, the city of Flint. And so, uh, but I'm proud to be from there, though. And so when I first became aware of Flint, initially, it was my roommate in college. He's, he's from, originally from Flint. And then, oh. and then it became a bigger deal when Michigan State won the national championship with the, the Flintstones. And so, yep. so that's when, you know, like for me, like Flint really be like, oh, wow, Flint, Flint, mm -hmm. Flintstones. Yeah. And, it, and what's interesting is that when we talk about the, the uh, when we talk about uh, Mateen, Mateen Cleaves and Morris Peterson and Charlie Bell, um, Antonio Smith, we talk about those guys when they talk about the Flintstones, that's the second wave. Those are the babies. Those, okay. those are the babies. Okay. And so, yeah, so, and that's why I can I can go back. So those guys, they, they grew up with me a couple of years younger than me. And so when I was a young, young guy, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, maybe seven years old, people were talking about Flintstones back then. They were talking about the Flintstones back then. But gotcha. they were talking about it because when we had, uh, Barry Stevens that would uh, go to Iowa State and break all the records, uh, all the basketball records at Iowa State. He was then followed by Jeff Grayer, who was also from Flint, who then went and broke all of his records. Wow. So you start hearing about the Flintstones already because all of these these people that came from Flint, they were now changing changing the way that things were done in, in other cities and other states across the country. And so that's when that wave of Flint, the Flintstones were, were known way, well before we got into the next generation, which were, which I call the babies. Right. The next generation was when all these guys ended up playing together. So Antonio, Antonio was the first one that went to, um, went, went over there and then, and then the, you know, the rest of the guys went as well. And so like Mateen was, Mateen and, and his brother, uh, his brother and I were really close. Okay. We were in elementary school. Mateen was the, the really, really, he was the baby boy. So he was always the one, you know, behind, left behind. We would always tell him, come on, hurry up before you miss the bus. You know, so he was always the, the, the little tyke. And so I can remember, you know, I can remember him in those days. Morris, Morris, um, his dad and my mom worked at the same elementary school. And so his dad was... Um, he was a uh, one of the uh, PE teachers. Uh, he was a community school director at the at the school. My mom was a teacher at the school, and so whenever I would go over to, to her school, then you know, uh, Little Morris was 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 there. So we played together. You know, again, he was a few years younger than me, but you know, we always played together. We, all, we were always in the gym. I was closer with his sister, closer in age with his sister. You know, uh, mm -hmm. Antonio, uh, when we were want to say we were in uh, I think seventh or eighth grade uh, and we played in, in a lot of basketball camps together and so so what's so interesting is at the time when we were like seventh or eighth grade 
you know, he and I were about the same, about the same height. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we were about the same height. So, you know, when we played together, we were on the same teams. We were just dominating everyone, everyone, um, you know, he, he ended up growing up to like, you know, six, eight. Right. <laughs> so, you know, he, he had his growth spurt, but we came up together. We were around the, around the same age. And so, um, and then Charlie, Charlie, Charlie's dad was a really, really good basketball player. And, um, and his dad had, um, he had a team, he had a traveling team, grown men, grown, and they played grown men basketball, but they had a traveling team. So, imagine you know all of these um i think all of them were probably about 35 40 50 years old grown grown men they would travel to different places playing in, in different leagues and so what my dad would do is that he would, would uh, he would always have the elderly charlie bell because his name was charlie bell as well uh he would have his team play against my dad's you know uh, high school team who was scrimmage against him. And so my dad always thought if you're, if you're going to try to beat anybody else, you need to be able to beat these grown men. And so that's how I knew Charlie because Charlie was like a little kid, but I knew his dad because of the connection with my dad and Charlie's dad. So that's how I knew Charlie. So I knew all of, I knew all of them. They were all much younger than me, but I knew them just growing up and, you know, but it all surrounded about, you know, around basketball. Um, and so that was the connection that we all had. And so, you know, you know, when they got together and they all went to Michigan State and to watch them now, you know, be connected and then go, go and thrive and win championship, it was, you know, it was a thing of uh, a thing of beauty to, to be able to watch it. That's know, awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And so, so yeah. we're going to talk about basketball, uh, your love for basketball. You're still, you're still within the sport. What other sports did you play growing up? Um, I tried to, I tried my hand at football. My parents kind of nixed that. Um, they were really, um, fearful of, of injuries. Um, and so, you know, I, I begged and begged and begged, um, to play football. Uh, I was a, you know, as a kid, I was a really good football player. Um, I, I was a big fan of, um, many people know about Barry Sanders. Um, but, I, before Barry Sanders, uh, there was Billy Sims. And Billy Sims was the was the running back um, for the Detroit Lions. Right. And so uh, Barry Sanders was like the the next generation of Billy Sims. But I grew up, you know, just just watching Billy Sims. And so you know, I learned all of Billy Sims' moves. I mean, his spin moves, his juke moves. And so when I was growing up, that was my thing. I wanted to be a running back. I wanted to be the next Billy Sims. And I was I was I was actually good. Um, at it, but uh, my parents were just like, no, that's just you know, we're too we're we're too concerned about you being targeted on every single play, and we don't want you to get injured. So they pulled me back from that. So um, so then you know I got into track and field, and I even uh, even played uh, played tennis mm. uh, growing up. So um, but I was always involved. I was always involved in every sport you could you could imagine, um, whether it be baseball. Uh, you know, as a kid, I played baseball played football i played um uh tennis ran ran track and field uh i even i even tried badminton um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i got i got pretty good at it and then how about i even learned how to play table tennis as a kid and then i started i won uh, a few medals um with that too we used to have a thing where every summer um 
the city of Flint would compete against the city of Hamilton um, in in Ontario, in Canada. And um, and so we would call it the the Canada USA Games and shortened it into the Canusa Games. And so every summer we would there would be a competition um, in the, the in the Canusa Games. So it would be uh, Canada versus um, versus United States, uh, Hamilton versus Flint, and we would compete. And every year we would. You know, one year we'd be in Flint, the next year we'd be in in, uh, in Hamilton, and then we would go back and forth, and then we would actually have a host um, family. So whenever uh, one of the uh, athletes would come from Hamilton to Flint, one of the uh, one of the athletes in Flint would host host the uh, the athlete, and then vice versa. Right. Um, so yeah, I played all of those, and um, and I got to the point where I got I got pretty good at, at all of them. And so even like the, the table tennis, that was, I, I didn't know that it was a thing up until I started messing around with it. And, you know, I played a little bit, played a little bit. And then next thing I know, I was, I was entered in one of the contests in the Canusa games and came in second place, you know, and not even, not even knowing what I was doing. I How just, about that? How yeah, about that? So, it's yeah, interesting. So I, you know, go ahead, go ahead. I was just saying, I, I had my hands in, in several, several sports. It's, you know, it, um, it's interesting that you said Hamilton because I, I was there for a short time with the uh, Hamilton Ticats in the CFL. Okay. So, like, okay. in, in the city of Hamilton really reminds me of Pittsburgh. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so going back to youth sports, talk to me about high school basketball for you. Oh, well, high school basketball was, was awesome. Um, again, we, you know, we had some you know, great, great players um, in the state of Michigan. But um, but you know I've been around I've been around a game of basketball my whole life obviously through through my dad uh, but high school was great uh, it was it was very competitive um, and the, the the competition was obviously with the the other teams that we played against but we had so much competition within our own team because we had so many quality players um, so you know we had a lot of fights. Um, you know, you know, guys wanting to get certain positions, um, and so there was a lot of infighting. But you know, we would always come together as a team because we were trying to beat the, the rival team. Um, what but, position uh, did you play? I was a point guard. Point guard. Okay. All right. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I was a point guard. What, which, what number did you rock? Jersey number. Thirty-three. Thirty-three. Is that his reason? Yeah. No. Uh, no. No. Um, there's a slight reason, but it, you know, it, it doesn't mean much. It was. It was another guy who was. Uh, he was. A few years, a uh, few grades higher than me, and um, and so I remembered when he was a freshman, he wore number fourteen. So mind you, he was I think he was three he was three years ahead of me, but I just I remembered him when he was a freshman. He was a really good shooter, and uh, and so when he was a freshman, I guess that would have put me at sixth grade, maybe. Yeah, sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I became a freshman. Luck of the draw, I had number 14. So he wore number 14, luck of the draw. When I was a freshman, I had number 14. So that was just kind of luck of the draw. But he, but when he went in, into his sophomore year, and so sophomore, junior, senior, he ended up wearing number 33. Okay, so so now I'm kind of watching his progress as a sophomore, junior, senior. So I said, well, dang, you know, he did that well jumping from 14 to 33. So my luck of the draw when I was a freshman, I had 14. So I was like, when I'm a sophomore, I'm going to 33. <laughs> so I, I want to, I want to be able to do it like he did. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. So yeah, that was uh, 33 was my number. Um, and then you know, so I've had uh, you know that was 
33 is always good to me, but, you know, I, I've transitioned on to another number now, and I've got my own number, and, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with that number. My number my number's going to stay gonna stay there until uh, until I, I leave the court. So, now, what number is that? Right right now, my number is 61. 61. Yep, 61. Yeah, 61. There it yeah, is. 61. There so, it is. Uh, never never been used never hey, never no one has ever used 61 i've i've been the only person uh, to wear number 61 on our staff um and so uh you know so i'm creating the legacy for uh, for number 61 awesome awesome yeah. post high school what was next uh i went off to college so um i got recruited by a couple of a uh, couple of schools in uh, michigan and uh i got recruited by uh, marquette in um in wisconsin and um, I got recruited by schools down south. And so I uh, actually had the, uh, the notion to go to school in Milwaukee. Uh, I remember doing a visit and it was like really, really frigid up there, man. It was, you know, it was you know, below 10, yeah, up there, really snow there. everywhere. Right. <laughs> but, you know, but I was from Michigan. So, you know, it, it was what it was. I didn't, I, I didn't really trip about it. It's just the fact that it was, it was just cold, but it just became, it was kind of the norm for me. But I remember doing my visit down in Louisiana at Southern University, and, uh, and after I did my visit down there, it was a wrap. That was <laughs> that's where I wanted to be because it was it was nice and hot. Uh, it, it was always you know grass was always green. Um, you know everybody seemed to be really laid back, uh, and it was a different environment. It was a different vibe. So I, I chose uh, Southern University, um, and, and and went down there and took my. Um, took my talents to, to <laughs> but but i but i learned so much in it and i'm gonna tell you right now it was it was a uh, a bit of a culture shock um just from the fact that uh they you know they they spoke a little bit differently because they had so many different um dialects and so many cultures that were that made up the the louisiana culture and so it was different for me um so and I, I jumped all into it, and, and it was uh, it was like really exciting. The food was phenomenal. Uh, the people were, you know, so much fun to be around. And um, and then I, I I basically created a new life um, down in Louisiana, and I stayed down there for for uh, for several years. Uh, went to school there, majored in computer science. Um, and then I actually, <clears throat> while there, I, I actually had a knee injury, which uh, which ultimately ended my my playing career. Um, and so that's what kind of transitioned me into something else, knowing that I wanted to still be involved in, uh, in basketball. And that's kind of how I found a, um, found a refereeing. It was actually based upon a dare. Um, mm. but, uh, but yeah, I got into it. I, um, I did, I did, I was doing an intern, um, in, in Michigan back in Flint. And, um, during the summertime I'd done an intern and I was talking to one of my colleagues and, uh, and I talked about, you know, possibly going back into coaching because when, when every summer that I would go back to Flint, I would uh, link back up with my dad and, uh, and I was his assistant coach. That makes so, sense. you know, we would, we would talk about, talk about basketball, talk about plays, talk about scenarios, so on and so forth. And he was actually teaching me the craft. Um, and so I was learning about coaching and I was really was thinking, uh, thinking about going into coaching. And, um, and so one, one particular time I was with, uh, one of my colleagues and and I was just just having a conversation with him talking to him about you know potentially coaching and he said to me you know why don't you try refereeing and at the time I think I may have been maybe uh, 19 20 years old I think I was 19 and um, and I said well, yeah you know I'm too I'm too young to do that 
and he mentioned to me that his uh, he knew of a kid who was 16 that was refereeing soccer. And so he says, yeah, you know, I know somebody that's doing this. He's young. You know, you should you should give it a shot. And I said, nah, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't even I don't even like referees. You know, so I don't you know, I don't really <laughs> want to do that. And uh, and then he the, the, he did the one thing that, you know, you know shame on me because I, I always have a difficult time once people do this. But he he went out and said, "Well, look, if you're scared to try, I understand." You know, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was, <laughs> and that was it. He dared me like that, and uh, I said, "Well, I'm not scared. Right. I do it. I can do it. I can do it." And so, lo and behold, I went back down to Louisiana, and um, I, I had no knowledge of how to get started. Uh, I, I had I, I didn't know what to do, any of that. But I just started. I got down there and just started asking around. Um, asking, you know, some of the high school coaches, you know, how do I get involved in this? And just started asking around. And um, one person led me to another person, which led me to another person. And then I just kept kept the, the, the ball rolling until I found the person who could get me where I needed to be. And um, and then they got me um, into a couple of classes that um, that you had to take to be a new person. You had to take a couple of tests. And, um, and I'll never forget uh, the very first time very first time I stepped onto a basketball court and it was at a, a we, we were playing in, in the uh, intramural gym and I had just finished playing. So uh, I, I went out, I played with some of the guys and I knew all the, all the guys that were playing. We were just playing a, a pickup game. And, um, and so I just finished and I was getting ready to leave. And right before I left, one of the guys who worked at the gym there, he was, uh, he was like one of the directors of, of, of the, the intramural gym. I told, told him that I wanted to referee. I wanted to learn how to do so. And he says, all right, well, here, here's a whistle. Go out and referee that game. And I said, no, I can't referee that game. I don't know what I'm doing. He said, I don't care. Just go out there and referee the game. And I said, well, I just finished playing with those guys. <laughs> He's like, I don't care. Just go out there and referee the game. So I, had no, I had no clue what I was doing, um, no idea whatsoever. Um, but he just threw me out there, gave me a whistle, and just, just threw me out there. And, um, you know, they were, obviously, everybody was mad at me because, you know, I, was, I wasn't calling travels. I wasn't calling fouls. I wasn't doing anything <laughs> right. Um, but I do remember somebody made a three-pointer, and I got so excited that he made the three-pointer, and I said, yeah, I think what they do is they hold their hands up or something. And I did that, but I was blowing my whistle as the guy made the three pointer and everybody's looking at me like, why are you going? Right. <laughs> so, and it started, it started from there. I started going to the classes and they told us where to be and where to stand and how to rotate and all these other things. And I just, I fell into it. I fell into it. And once I, once I got into it, I was into it, you know, all, you know, anything re- related to, to uh, basketball and refereeing, I was all in it. I was getting magazines. Um, I was watching, um, you know, games, you know, basketball games on TV where I originally was watching the players. I then was watching the referees, which I never had done before. Um, so you name it, I was doing it from a, from a different perspective. So but my lens was then starting to change. And, uh, and as my lens started to change, I was now learning a, uh, a new skill. And, uh, and as I started learning this new skill, uh, I, I just continued to, to just soak it all in. I got more and more excited, more and more dedicated, and I just continued to, to push forward in, the, in this new craft and this new skill that I was starting to learn. 
And so number number 61, the reason why you share that, that number, you have a love for that number, because that is actually your jersey number. You are now reffing at the highest level in the NBA. Yep. Take us a few yep. steps before that, before you got to the NBA. How did you get there? Um, well, uh, I started on the high school level in, uh, in 94 and, uh, that was, that was the year that I, I tried, you know, tried to, to tried to referee. And that's when I was um, doing like the, the little kids, the bitty ball games, um, and doing some of the middle school games and, and high school games. So that's when I started in 94. But like I told you, I was like really, um, really fully engaged in, in learning this, this skill and making myself a, a, a better student of this game. Um, and so through that year, uh, 94, 95, 96, you know, I was, I was all in. And what I, what I started learning is that refereeing, if you want to develop and grow as a referee from one level to the next, that you, you ultimately have to be recruited just like players get recruited. And so mm-hmm. I actually went to a training camp um, an identification training camp in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, in uh, in 2016. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In uh, in 1996. And while at the uh, at this training camp, <clears throat> uh, someone from the uh, from the NBA was there uh, identifying talent. And so I did the you know the high school stuff. I did the big ball stuff. I was trying to get myself onto the college level and and potentially do small college ball. So that's what I was there auditioning for. I was there actually trying to get picked up by one of the, the college conferences. And, and so um, that, that's what I was looking for. But I was then being identified by someone from the NBA. And I, I didn't know that. So, you know, it just so happened that someone was there that was recruiting. And so, you know, I had a little bit of talent. So on the college level, they were now starting to give me an opportunity to work on the college level with some uh, with some junior college games, um, and then some division two and division three games. And so the, the NBA, um, obviously was monitoring, um, my movements, you know, kind of in the back channel. And, um, and again, they, you know, went back again the next, uh, the next year. And, um, and so the, the, the gentleman who was the supervisor of officials at the time, Daryl Garrison, the late Daryl Garrison, um, he identified me and wanted to bring me into the training program. And, uh, and at the time that was called the Continental Basketball Association, the CBA. Uh, and so it brought me into the CBA in, in, um, in 1997. And so that was, that was a quick, quick, uh, movement from yeah. 94 to 97, you know, where, where I'm just learning the craft to now doing semi-pro, uh, basketball. So it was a quick jump for me, but again, I was all in. Gotcha. I, mean, I was all into it. So, you know, and my work ethic was like really, really, you know, once I'm in it, I'm in it. And, uh, and so, and that's, you know, basically what I followed. And so I stayed in the CBA for uh, three years for, from 97 into 2000. Um, but at the, when we got into, you know, during that time was the, the, the creation of the WNBA. So in 97, the, the WNBA was getting started as well. And so <clears throat> first year of the WNBA, the, um, the quality wasn't quite the way that they wanted pro basketball to represent women's basketball. And so it was all, it was all a, a, a moving organism. 
And so what, what happened is that they took, they decided to take pro referees that were working on in the CBA, merge them with college referees that essentially were working the WNBA games, merge them together to create a new staff. And so I ended up being part of the staff in uh, 98 and 99, I'm sorry, uh, 99 and 2000. Um, to referee in the WNBA, so that was my. That's how my my, uh, my career went. So it was a high school, uh, it was a bitty ball middle school, high school, and then I moved into JUCO, and in a little bit of Division um, Two, and then I worked my way into the CBA. I did the CBA for a few years, and then got into the WNBA. Did that for a couple of years um, before I ventured on into the uh, into the pros. And I will tell you that. Through, throughout my whole career, I've only worked one Division One basketball game. My whole career. Who played in that game? Do you remember? Uh, it was te- it was uh, Texas Southern and Alcorn. Hmm. Jan- January. It was January the ninth. January ninth, and it was nineteen ninety nine. I think it was. Okay. Okay. Yep. What uh so your yep. first year in NBA was 2000. 2000, 2000. Yeah, 2000. So you said something that's interesting. So with us working with collegiate student athletes and grade school student athletes, you said you had talent as a referee. Like most people understand they know what talent looks like as a basketball player, a hockey player, or a football player. But what is talent as a referee? Can you break that down a little bit more? Sure. Uh so number 1 uh, the first thing, the first portion of it is athleticism, mm. because most people, when they look at the basketball court, they they think of the, the 10 athletes that are on the floor. But as a referee, you have to understand that there are three other athletes that are on the floor. And so because the referees run um, as much as the players run. OK, the difference, the difference in the two is that during timeouts, the players sit down, the referees don't. Okay, so referees are on their feet the, the entire game other than halftime. And so in order to, to display some, some level of athleticism as it relates to the game, referees need to look the part. So that's the first thing. Second thing is having a feel for the game and understanding the game. Okay? And so when, when a referee can understand that the difference between marginal contact versus illegal contact and can grasp that concept and understand where the where the balance is, then that's a level of of of, child, of talent. Okay, uh, and then also being able to understand how to communicate with coaches and players—that's mm, yeah, a level of talent good. that it's an un, it's an unseen talent because me, most people don't don't know that a referee is communicating well with a player, or most people don't know that a referee is communicating well with a coach. Um, so these are things that these are kind of intangibles. So there's a lot of other little details that stand out that most people won't see just with the naked eye. And so being around the referee community, you then can dial in and start seeing things that are a little bit more uh, poignant than the, than the, uh, than the average um, fan of the game. That's good. That's good. And as you were speaking, I wrote down communication. I thought about that and the importance of that, because that's one thing that we help our student athletes develop their communication, impromptu speaking, and then also the power and importance of building relationships. So I can see that really, really been important in your line of work. 
you already spoke to the communication, but also the ability to be able to build relationships as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so as a referee, what's one of your favorite moments that, that you can share with us? Uh, whew, I've had so many moments All over right. the years, but let me think. Uh, I think one of, one of my favorite moments, um, and this is, this is one that probably no one would, would, um, would remember, but I remember it because it was, I think it was a, a catalyst to me making my way into the playoffs. And so in, in 2000, it was 2005, um, I remember the game in Dallas, which was Phoenix playing uh, against Dallas. Um, and it was a pivotal game. We were getting close to the end of the season. And, um, and so people are, the teams are jockeying for what position they're going to be in the playoffs. So we're getting close to the end. And, uh, and I can remember um, we get down to the very end of the game, and I believe that uh, Dallas may have been down by two points. And, um, and so Dirk Nowitzki makes a drive to the basket. And, you know, everybody's expecting that there's going to be contact and there's going to be a foul. And so uh, Sean Marion kind of swipes from behind. And what, you know, what would seem to be, you know, Dirk Nowitzki, because Dirk Nowitzki ends up going to the floor. And, you know, everybody thinks that it's a foul on the play. Um, And I'm on the play. And from where I'm standing, I clearly, clearly, clearly see unequivocally that uh, Sean Marion got all ball when he blocked the shot. And, um, and Phoenix goes on to win the game. You know, people in Dallas were upset about the play, but when you go and you look at the replay, you all you need to do is look at it one time, and it was a clean block. And my supervisor was at the game that uh, that game. He was there, and so I mean, he came in the locker room giving me high fives and hugs for you know for no calling the play and making a good decision on the play. And I think that that may have been uh, the play that helped me. To get my way into the playoffs uh, that year, so um, so yeah, so that one that one kind of jumps out at me. That's a great one. That's a great one. And so so, what would you say to young student athletes? Because a lot of them, majority of them, they want to be professional athletes, no matter the sport, baseball, basketball, hook, hockey, or, or football. Uh, but as we know, there are everyone's not gonna be able to play right at the professional level injuries happen happen to you at the collegiate level but there's still opportunity to be around the game and so for those who may not have been exposed to or even thought about becoming a referee what would you say to encourage them to consider looking into becoming a a a referee well i would i would just say find the niche Mm. find the niche find the thing that you love and so i didn't know that i was going to love refereeing you know i tried something you know this was this was me stepping out and doing something that was a little uncomfortable for me because i had no idea what i was doing however once i once i got involved in it got someone engaged in it i was all in it and so i fell in love with it and that is what catapulted me to something else because i because i found the niche once i found the niche i went all in so i'd say find the niche and so you know, there's there's refereeing, and, and and so when you talk about sports, people look at the players. Obviously, that's what everybody looks at. But there are so many other things that are that make up the game itself. And so, if you think about, not only do you have the the players, but you have the coach, you have the head coach, you have the assistant coach, you have the trainer, 
Um, you have the psychiatrist. You have the uh, the chef. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, you have the yeah. You have the the sports writer. You have the statistician. Um, you have the PA announcer. Uh, you have so many. There's so many entities that make up the sport itself. And so what I what I would say is find the niche, find the thing that you love as it relates to that sport. If you love sports, find the thing that works for that sport. For me, it ended up being a referee. But again, it, it took me to try something. You know, it was it was all based upon a dare. But it took me something. It took me that to try something. If I was going to be you know, one of the, you know, one of, if I was going to be the, um, the, the team physician, or if I was going to be, um, uh, let's see, a sport, a sports writer, then if I love the sport that much, then I would need to develop skills for writing. I would need to develop skills for storytelling. I would need to be develop skills to be so detailed so that when people read my article, they would be able to know exactly what what went on without seeing it, but not being able to comprehend and read it. So find the niche, find the thing that works within the sport that you love, and then just go after it and just tackle that that thing. Great advice, great advice. And, and as we start to wrap up, so with Orange Arrow, our mission is to coach student athletes to aim for success off the field, off the track, out of the pool, wherever the playing arena may be. And sure, it's really about becoming more than an athlete, success off the field. So why is it important to be successful outside of sports? Because uh, I do believe that it's a balance. I think that uh, that sports sets you up for other things. Um, the one thing that I, what I realized, what I've come to realize, especially in this country, is that sports is what connects people. Sports connects everyone in this country. And... Um, and so I think that there's a, a, a huge importance as it relates to sports. And so you can start with the sporting industry and then you can venture out to so many other things. Uh, we talked about golf uh, early on the, uh, when, we, when we started talking, you know, another sport. But what we've done is we're, we're now crossing, you know, two, two sports, two industries. But I can take golf connected with golf. I'm sorry, I can take I can take basketball connected with golf and uh, and then start a, a real estate deal. <laughs> you right, know what I'm saying? Right, because totally. I can take basketball, connect with someone who's, who I'm playing golf with, who ends up being uh, a real estate agent or, or, or a developer or something, and then tie it into something else. And so that's where the, the connection comes. And so... Sports are, are, to me, in this country, are is one of the you know the best industries to cross balance everything else. And so, you know, if you if you notice now, while everyone has been quarantined, one of the things that so many people have been complaining about while being quarantined is the lack of sports that are out there. Right. Um, and so it's a, it's amazing how sports have played such an impact on people um, in this country. Uh, and, and now, you know, it's becoming globally as well. Um, and so you, you can look at other countries. And so uh, you look at, at, you know, how how soccer has just blossomed in so many other countries, number one, number one um, sport in the world. Right. But it, it balances, it finds a balance for everyone. And so you can have people that, you know, have true anger toward each other, but you let them be fans of the same team 
and at least for two and a half hours, three hours, <laughs> right. they'll, be, they'll be the best buddies. You're right, right. So there's a, that's the thing with, with sports. It just it bridges the gap for all the other things that you could, you could potentially do. And you don't have to be the player. You don't have to be that, that talent, but you become the talent in whatever industry that links to sports. Right. And so if, so for me, I'm not the, the talent as in playing, but I am the talent as in refereeing the game, as in calling the game. I am the talent. And so the coach may not be the talent as it relates to playing the game, but he is the talent as in organizing those players. The trainer may not be the talent as in playing the game, but he is the talent for making sure that the players are physically capable of participating in the game. And so you just be the talent in whatever industry that you are in and be the best talent. I love it. Be the talent, be the talent, be the best talent. Last question for you, your former point guard, your point guard, I won't get you in trouble, so we're gonna go retired. If you had to have a pickup game with four other retired NBA players to go play someone else, you the point guard, who the other four that's on your squad? Retired. Oh, well, I got to start with MJ. Ooh, okay. uh, yep. I got to start with Michael Jordan, greatest player of all time. Okay. Uh, got to have him on the squad, no doubt. Um, I don't think that anybody can, can do anything against Shaq in the post. Um, so I definitely would have Shaq in the post. All right. Um, you can, you put Kobe on the, could put, put Kobe on the floor. I just, I just passed the ball to Michael and Kobe and let them just do their work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and I, Fair and enough. And I just, I just pick up assists. <laughs> and you know you what? Got, what? I think what? I would, I would have uh, Dennis Rodman do, do all the dirty work. Oh, and interesting. Yep. I like yep. that five. I like that five. Yeah. That's a strong. That's a winning five. That's yeah. That's a, that's a winning five. That's a winning five. I, I'd let them. I, I'd let Dennis do all the dirty work, get get dirty and bloody and everything else, because he's going after every single ball, um, and he's going to disrupt everybody on the opposing team. Right. Um, I can I can dump the ball down in the shack and nobody can stop it. Uh, I can give it to Mike and let Mike just do his thing, and then when he gets tired, I give it to Kobe and let him do his thing. Yeah, you, you got to make sure you do your part, right? Hey, man, <laughs> you got to throw the ball and play defense. Make sure I pass the ball and play defense. Right. And I'll take, hey, I'll, I'll even take a couple charges. I don't there know. it is. There it is for the team. No high team. CK, Courtney, my guy, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you. All the best to you moving forward uh, whenever the season starts up again. Uh, again, thank you for your time, my guy. Look forward. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me here.